Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 402. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 402 you are listening to. My guest today is Grammy-winning producer, engineer, Arnie Frager, who has worked with Paul McCartney, Prince, Beyonce, Michael Jackson, Santana, Dolly Parton. Yeah, a lot of heavy-duty people. But one of the things that's special about Arnie and how it relates to the Bay Area is he was the owner of the Plant Studios located in Sausalito and oversaw it at a time where they had great success, where in one room you'd have Dave Matthews and another room you'd have Metallica and another room you'd have Santana. Yeah, really great spot. And we're going to talk all about that. And it's going to be fascinating because me as a former studio owner can completely relate. And I bet a lot of you out there can relate too. So very excited to have him on. I have to thank our mutual friend, and former WCA guest John Cunaberti for connecting Arnie and I. Really appreciate that. Thanks, John. And uh, that's it. So, Arnie Frager coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Cast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about books. That's right. Um, I've got a stack of books here in front of me that I have acquired. Some I've paid for, some I haven't, and either way, uh, these are some great books that I want to recommend. And yes, they are audio related, of course. All right. Um, first up, this will be a popular one that many of you are already aware of. Mastering Audio, the Art and the Science by Bob Katz. Uh, this is a fantastic book that really, really gets into some serious digital minutia. If you're a mastering engineer, it's great. Uh, but quite honestly, no matter what type of engineer you are, it's great. There's just some good, good information in here that Bob has provided us all. Sorry, I'm a little distracted. I'm flipping through it. Um, anyways, mastering audio, the art and the science. Done. That's a good one. Um, David Hewitt's new book, On the Road, Recording the Stars in the Golden Era of Live Music. Uh, this is one I've recently got a hold of, and it's really, really entertaining on a number of levels. Fascinating. David's career in the world of audio uh, is, to me, it's quite intriguing. So check that out. I'm not done with it. So when I get to the end of the book, I'll give you the conclusion, but uh, I don't want to give it away, but check it out on the road, recording the stars in the golden era of live music by David Hewitt, former WCA guest, David Hewitt on episode 400. Uh, this is one of my favorites here. Template mixing and mastering the ultimate guide to achieving a professional sound. Uh, this is actually by Billy Decker and Simon Taylor. And I've talked about this book and 
I don't know if you remember me talking about sitting down and going through it like piece by piece by piece and implementing Billy's uh, template. And, you know, I think at first I was like, oh my gosh, what, like, why would I, why would I set this up like this? These are plugins I would never use in this order. And lo and behold, after a little trial and error, after setting it up, it turned into one of my favorite mixing techniques. Um, I haven't actually used it in a little while, but it really, really allowed me to pull off some fantastic mixes. And I will return to this template uh, in some mixes I have coming up because, damn it, it just works. And it may not work for you, but I loved it. And you should check it out. Uh, template Mixing and Mastering, The Ultimate Guide to Achieving a Professional Sound. Check that out. Okay. Um, and of course, Billy Decker has been a guest on the show and another book from another guest on the show, Dan Alexander, uh, the Dan Alexander, it's called Dan Alexander audio, a vintage odyssey. And this is a book, as you would imagine by its title about vintage audio gear, um, talking about Dan's travels to buy gear um, around the world, as well as getting into the details of some of the pieces of gear. He also, this is really fascinating. He has all of his sales listed in the book so that you could go through and you can like look up, you know, who bought a certain piece of gear. Cause he lists the serial number and he lists like I think what he paid for it and what he sold it for. Yeah, maybe that's how. I guess it depends on the list you're looking at. What's fascinating about this book is it really talks about, or it highlights, doesn't talk about it necessarily, really highlights how vintage gear has just grown in value over time. So definitely like, I don't know, I think of it as a, as a coffee table book put it on the coffee table and when you have coffee you sit and you flip through it and just go holy shit look at that look at that uh you know plate reverb or that emt 244 or whatever and then look at the pricing on some of the stuff and the stories behind it that dan has yeah that's a great book uh dan dan actually sent that to me so i have to thank dan for that so yeah, Dan Alexander Audio, A Vintage Odyssey. Um, I'm not going to pull it down from the shelf because it weighs a ton. Um, but recording the Beatles, actually, I'm going to go pull it down. Hang on. Okay. Okay, my spine just got compressed a little more picking it up. Okay, recording the Beatles. I know you all have heard of this. And... You know, this is probably one of the most comprehensive books I think you'll find out there on techniques. That's me pulling the uh, the book out. I feel horrible because mine has coffee stains on the edge, not on the the not on the spine, but on the opposite the spine. Um. So this is by Brian Kehu and Kevin Ryan. 
And if you ever get a chance to buy this book, because I know it kind of goes in and out of sale as it comes in and out of print, this is one of the most mind-blowing books that I don't think you'll ever finish. There's so much information in here. You could read this like for the next couple years and probably still not finish it. Yeah, and it comes with, it, at least when mine came, my wife gave this to me as a gift. It comes with all kinds of like track sheets, reprints of track sheets, of course, not the original track sheets, notes and all, just like uh, there's a poster of of the um, I'm totally spacing on the name of the console. I feel like a fool. Um, you know, the EMI console, the famous EMI console. Um, there's a poster of that in here. This is super cool. There, it's about 150 bucks, if I recall correctly. And it weighs a ton. So, recording the Beatles, the studio equipment and techniques used to create their classic albums. If you are even a, a minor Beatles fan, this is such a cool book. And it comes in, comes in a box that looks like um, a two inch tape box or a one inch tape box, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that could fit a two inch reel. Maybe, maybe. Anyways, it looks like a tape box. It's the, it's, it's a concept and you'll get it the minute you see it, if you haven't seen it. So be sure and check that out. Um, those are some books. Yeah. So if you're looking for something cool for a gift for yourself, you know, if somebody's saying, Hey, I need a birthday idea or a Christmas idea or some kind of gift idea for you. And you don't have one of these books, put those on the list and give your gift giver an opportunity to give you a cool book. Yeah. Anyways, those are some books that I think you should check out. I've enjoyed them. I haven't read through every single one of them thoroughly. So probably except for the, the Billy Decker template book, which I've gone through like page by page by page, word by word, but all great books. Anyhow, that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Arnie Frager here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Arnie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Great to have you here. We have a lot of territory to cover, so I'm going to try to move quick. Where did you grow up? Cleveland, Ohio. Actually, Cleveland Heights in, in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. And when you were growing up, was music a part of your family or is it something that you had to go out and discover on your own? Oh, I started taking piano lessons at the age of five. I've, I've been a musician since I'm three. My parents discovered that I, I would sit still and not run around if they played music. And my parents played a lot of classical music. So I grew up with classical music. I studied piano from the age of five until I was 18. So I've been a musician my whole life. I switched from the piano. I took up the upright bass at the age of 12. I played all over Cleveland in various bands with the upright bass. And I stayed in Cleveland for undergraduate school at Case Institute of Technology, as it was called at that time. Today, it's called Case Western Reserve. All right. Okay. But I went there for uh, undergraduate school, and then I went to UCLA for my master's degree. I have 
two degrees in electrical engineering. I was going to say, and you get you got your master's at UCLA, right? Yeah, and I've been a musician the whole time. Long before I ever built a recording studio or did records, I was playing in bands. I've been an avid listener of jazz, rock, and classical music. I'm very familiar with all three, I would say. I think since the age of 10, I had a fascination with the charts. And I used to watch and read the billboard charts and correlate the charts to the songs on the radio. I had a fascination with pop music that uh, exists to this day. And the fascination is, what makes that song a hit? Exactly. I've been that way since I was, before I was a teenager, actually. Although I didn't plan it that way, I think I had an unusual background when it came to starting to get into record production. Because I'd been playing in bands and playing a lot of instruments. And I also knew a lot about electronics. So when did recording start to catch your attention and become something that you became interested in doing? Well, that was a fluke, actually. I decided at the age of 29 or 30 that the career I had carved out, which was throughout the late 60s and the early 70s, I was selling computer systems for a Boston company. And I was very high tech at that time. And I decided that I didn't really want that life. I wanted to be playing bass in a band. Hmm. And I was very influenced by Miles Davis and in particular, the fusion movement in the early 70s, the Ma Vishnu Orchestra, Herbie Hancock. So when jazz sort of became rock and jazz together, I was so influenced by that that I just dropped my whole career selling computers. I quit the computer business. And I moved out to L.A. from Washington, D.C., where I was a regional sales manager for this Boston computer company named Adage. When I moved to L.A., I thought our band was going to get to be a huge deal because we had a major producer, a guy by the name of Bumps Blackwell. And Bumps had been the manager of Little Richard, and he was the manager of Sam Cooke. And he was the manager of Quincy Jones, played in his band. So I thought we were positioned to become the next big deal. So I leased the building on Venice Beach. Hmm. And I thought the building was going to be for the purpose of hanging out with babes and partying as a rock star. (laughs) 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 That's how crazy I was. But I was hell-bent to be in the music business, not in the computer business. So... I had this building, and then the band and the record that we made with Bumps, nothing happened. Mm. And the record, nothing happened. And the band started going their separate ways, and I had this building, and it was literally on the sand, right on the beach. And I thought, what a cool thing to have a recording studio on, a Ven- on the beach in Venice. And I did not understand that that time when timing was really great because it was 1973, And the recording business and the record business was just booming after the 60s. Hmm. So what was supposed to be a hangout for rock stars turned into a little four-track demo studio. (laughs) I call it my college of musical knowledge because I didn't really know any. I knew nothing about recording. I didn't know a microphone from a reverb. And they, believe it or not, 
you can go to six years of college back then in electrical engineering and computer science, which were my specialties, and they didn't teach audio at all. Wow. I didn't know a limiter or a compressor from a microphone. But you put this studio together right there on the beach. I mean, was this 100% you or were there other people involved? No, it was me. You're too young to remember the TX-3340, but the TX-3340 oh, I was remember. my first. You remember it? Yeah. Well, that was my multi-track machine, and my mixing board was a Sun PA mixer that the EQ said treble and bass. That was the EQ. So I had this little four-track studio to make demo tapes for $15 an hour. And just to give you an idea of the journey... From 1973, when I started Spectrum Studios, which I named after the band, the band was called Spectrum. Okay. So I named the studio Spectrum Studios. I had the studio from 1973 to 1982. It went from four track to I had an Ampex eight track to then I got a 3M7916 track with a four track and two two tracks. And then I got a 24 track, and then I got two 24 tracks and a digital two track. So over that nine years, I went from a four track demo studio to a real 48 channel analog and digital professional studio. And this was all Spectrum on the beach? On the beach in Venice Beach, 1973 to 1982. Yeah. What did you learn in, in that time period about people and business and audio? Well, let's see. What did I learn? I learned that recording studios are a money-losing proposition, generally speaking. Mm. If you can make a living at it and pay for you, your wife, and your children, that's like doing great. Spectrum was very hard financially. It was a real struggle for the first two or three years. It didn't really become a real business until I got a 16-track 3M79 there was a guy in Hollywood that none of the leasing companies would talk to me because I didn't have any money. So I went to all the leasing companies to get equipment and a real mixing board. I wanted an API board. Nobody would give me any equipment. And then there was a guy who had leased a whole setup for a film composer in Hollywood. And then when he and his wife got a divorce, he had to give up his studio and so the leasing company called me up and they said, you still looking for equipment for your Venice Beach studio? I said, yeah. So, well, we'll lease you a 24 track, a four track and two two tracks made by 3M for a thousand a month. Well, at the time, my overhead for everything was a thousand a month. So I didn't know how in the hell I could afford that. But I jumped into it and I had to make it work. If you cut your ties from your past, and your only future is what you want in life, then you have to make it work. I used to tell people, well, they said, well, what made you successful? I said, well, I made sure I had no fallback. I, I had to make it work or I was going to die. <laughs> it was You burned the bridge. Exactly. Yeah. And I made it work for nine years there on Venice Beach. And it was quite a ride, I have to tell you. And where did that take you at the end of that journey? Well, I outgrew that space. I knew I was going to have to find a bigger room when I got Mick Fleetwood. And Mick Fleetwood came in to play drums on a record for Atlantic. It was the Jeremy Spencer band. 
And Jeremy Spencer had been in the earlier Fleetwood Mac group. And Ahmet Erdogan, the chairman of the board of Atlantic, had resurrected his career. He was an English kid. They had signed him to do a full album. And they had Jim Ed Norman as producer. And they said, we're going to have Mick Fleetwood's going to come in and play on this record. So I was very excited about that. And he came in, set up the drum, the roadies set up the drums. Mick came in, he hit the snare drum. And I have to understand that Spectrum only was about eight foot high ceilings. It was such a small room and it was, it was such a low overhead uh, ceiling that I put carpet on the floor and up halfway up the walls to deaden the room. Mm. And so when he hit the snare drum, <laughs> it had absolutely no ambience. So he hit the snare drum once and he said, oh, I can't, I can't play the drums in this room. And, and that was toward the end of the uh, nine years I was there. I realized that I just really needed a bigger, liver room. So I found one in Hollywood and I, I moved my whole operation from Venice Beach to Hollywood. Did you carry the Spectrum name forward or did you rename the new studio? No, there was a gentleman that owned a place in Hollywood. It was just slightly east of Hollywood called Mars. It was a rehearsal studio, but he had one really big room, a beautiful big room. It was about four times the size of Spectrum, and it had 18-foot ceiling, 20-foot ceilings. It was a great room. And I said, if you want to be 50-50 partners, I'll move my whole operation up here. Because by then, I had real clientele. Mm -hmm. I had scored... A fellow by the name of Norman Granz. Do you know the name? I don't know the name. So Norman Granz, very famous producer. He was to the world of jazz in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. He was to jazz what Bill Graham was to rock and roll. Wow. Norman had a series in the 40s called Jazz at the Philharmonic. He was the one who managed Ella Fitzgerald, Count Basie, Oscar Peterson trio, the real blue chip major jazz artists of the 40s and 50s. He recorded Art Tatum in the 50s. And he had an office up in Beverly Hills and he recorded all the time. And he loved my Venice Beach studio. So the next thing I knew, I was recording his artists. And the first one I did that was a major act was when I was 16 track, I recorded a group called the LA Four, and that was Bud Shank on saxophone, Lorindo Almeida on guitar, a very famous bass player by the name of Ray Brown, and Shelly Mann on drums. And in the 70s, these were jazz stars. They called the group the LA Four. It was an album I did for Concord Records, which has since become a very big label. But at the time, Concord was started by Out Your Way, Carl Jefferson, who had a car dealership, but he was a jazz fan. And he, he started the Concord Pavilion, and he also founded Concord Records. And hmm. they were a, jazz, a small jazz label based in the Bay Area. And I did this record for them. <laughs> and you want to talk about a funny break, talk about a big break. Ray Brown had been on the cover of Downbeat Magazine for like the last 10, 15 years. He was the number one jazz bass player at the time. 
What I didn't know was that Ray Brown had another career as a union contractor in Hollywood because he knew all the jazz musicians. The jazz musicians were in demand to play on the R&B dates and on the television dates because they were the top musicians. So Ray would contract the really great musicians for the commercial gigs where they made most of their money. They made most of their money not touring as jazz musicians. They made most of their money playing in studios in Hollywood for television and film dates. Hmm. And Ray made triple scale, just contracting gigs for these guys. So when I recorded the band, you know, back in those days, the guys would come in, they'd sit down, they'd all look at each other. You'd arrange them in the room so they could see. And they'd start playing. And after they play the first song, they'd come in to the control room. Well, I was an upright bass player, so I knew the uh, the instrument really well, but I had never been a recording engineer and I didn't know how to record that. So when Ray Brown walked into my studio, I had bought Oscar Peterson records and gone to their concerts for 10 years. And I was completely scared to death because A, I had never recorded, even though I had played that instrument, I had never recorded it. I didn't know anything about recording a string bass. And here was the number one guy, the biggest guy in the business. So I took two U- U87s, one on the neck, one on the bridge, and I took his direct output. So I had three inputs to the mixing board, which was a Harrison board. And when he came into the control room, I hadn't had a chance to really listen to the mics and balance everything because the guys wanted to just play right away and I recorded it. So he came in to hear a playback. And I didn't know what to do, how to configure the mic. So I just put the three inputs equal on the mixing board, all three of them. Played it back. He looked at me and he said, that's the best sound anybody ever got on my bass. Wow. That's what he said. Wow. And I, and I thought, <laughs> well, I got lucky because he loves the sound. Well, but what I didn't know is he went to Hollywood and he told people, all these musicians that he was contracting. said, look, if you really want to have a great session, go see this guy on Venice Beach. And he went around, he was like my salesman. He went around touting me. And so next thing you know, I I was making one jazz album after another. And that whole nine years, I'd say 80% of the records I made were pretty famous jazz albums. When you went to the Hollywood studio, did you let the building on Venice Beach go? What happened on Venice Beach was that the guy who owned the building, by a fluke, he, he won in a lottery a liquor license. And so he put, he put a bar restaurant on the first floor. My studio was on the second floor of this building. It was just two stories, and I was on the second floor. Mm. And he wanted to put this restaurant with a liquor bar underneath it. And I said, Mark, that's not going to work for me. And it was just, it was time to go. Yeah, Because by this time, I was pretty established as a jazz recording engineer. I did a few R&B records for Motown that were successful. I think the record that I did at Spectrum that was the biggest seller, believe it or not, it was done in one day. You know who George Winston is and Wyndham Hill? Yeah, totally. So, so get this. Harn Soper had a studio here in San Mateo. I forget the name of it. And I had just gone digital. I was the first studio owner in Los Angeles to buy the Sony digital two-channel system that was used for mastering compact discs. Mm. 
but the compact disc players weren't going to come out until 82. So Sony was trying to get those of us that were professional engineers and studio owners to start recording digital so that there'd be content when the players came out. Right. So I bought the Sony two channel system in 79 and we were making digital recordings to two channels, but you would press a vinyl record because there were no compact discs for three more years. Right. And so I get this call from the guys at the studio in San Mateo say, you have the Sony digital two track because Wyndham Hill is a digital label. Will Ackerman wants to make every record digital. That's his whole deal. And you're the only guy in LA with the Sony system, except for Stevie Wonder. And Stevie Wonder doesn't rent it out. Right. We'd like to rent out your studio for George Winston's going to make his first record for Wyndham Hill. I said, well, who's that? Who's George Winston? Well, you'll find out. So you have to understand, I'm a classically trained piano player. And I'm a very good piano player. And George Winston came in to my studio with a brown bag. Union date. Union dates are three hours. So he comes in at 9 a.m. The first date is from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. I record him on the piano. I had a Yamaha seven and a half foot grand. Recorded him. And then at one o'clock, he took his brown bag. He went out on the beach down by the water sat on the beach, had lunch, came back. We did another session from two to five. And that was a whole album called Autumn, which has sold five or six million albums. It was the biggest hit that Wyndham Hill ever had at that time. I did the whole record <laughs> in two, three-hour sessions in one day. And here's the funny thing that ties us together. When I had my studio in San Francisco, George was one of my biggest clients and he kept his Yamaha piano at my studio. Oh, really? For the longest time. And he and Howard Johnston would come in every so often for, you know, a couple days at a time or three days at a time. And yeah, so that's funny. That's interesting to hear the start of George Winston. That was his first record. And I think that's the biggest seller that I ever made at that studio. I mean, I made a lot of jazz albums. I did a record with Dolly Parton there that was very exciting. When Dolly Parton came to the Spectrum Studios, there was an engineer in Hollywood by the name of Eric Prestige. And uh, Eric, he was one of those, you, you asked me in your list of things you want to know about mentors. I learned a lot about how to record drums from Eric Prestige because he came in and we had, you, you know who Jim Keltner is? Oh, yeah. He was the drummer on this album. It's called uh, Great Balls of Fire, the record that I did with Dolly Parton in the late 70s. And Keltner was coming in to do some drum overdubs, and Dolly was coming in to do vocals. And I was there, and Eric was the engineer, but because he was very busy in Hollywood doing a bunch of things, he started the project and then he turned over the vocals to me to work with Dolly. And I got to work with Dolly Parton. It was a very big deal to me. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, two legendary people, Dolly Parton and Jim Keltner, no doubt. Yeah. And, a, and there was a third legend there. I didn't know he was a legend, but Dean Parks was the guitar player and Dean wasn't playing. They weren't doing guitars, but he just hung out. And I had no idea that at that time he was considered one of the top, session guys in Nashville. Hmm. 
And he was the electric guitar player. But we had a great session. Things I learned. Eric taught me that a C414 is the best choice you could ever use on toms because I've been using dynamic microphones on toms because you get a lot more separation and control. If you use a condenser on toms, you're going to get cymbals, you're going to get everything else. But Eric showed me how you could use really hot condenser mics on toms and get a lot more depth out of the toms and still maintain the separation between the drums. So I would say that he was one of my mentors. I had a few of them, but he was one. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say, Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. The business things that you learned, were you able to survive on the income that you were making from the studio, from Spectrum at the time? Yeah, ever since I cut my ties from selling computer systems, you know, the funny thing is I was making... Today's dollar, I was making three, four hundred thousand a year. I was a, I was one of those techies, you know, kid right out of college making really big money. Yeah, because I was really good in sales. And I think, by the way, the background I had selling computer systems for twelve years, I think having a sales background really made the difference between me surviving and not surviving, because I had to go out to record labels and get the projects. I was the salesman for the studio. I've always been the salesman for all my studios, the three in LA and at the plant, I was the salesman. And I made it a point to go to record company A&R offices every week. And I got to a point where I knew every A&R guy at every major label and a few of the minor, less important labels. But That was how I survived by my sales chops because there was just so many major studios in Hollywood and Burbank. People told me I was crazy. Studio on Venice Beach? Kid, don't you know everybody records in Hollywood or Burbank? Mm. So, well, okay. I think they might come down to the beach. It's sort of fun. (laughs) 
So you had three studios in LA, you had Spectrum, and then what was the, the first studio in LA called? The first studio in Hollywood was called Mars. Okay. He had three rehearsal studios and the big room that he had was built by a guy named Jack Douglas. Now, oh. Jack Douglas, you may know Jack. He, he's a producer of Aerosmith. In fact, the last time I talked to Jack, because I got to know him later on in life, he used to come and work at the plant. He said to me, I was, say, I was complaining to him at the plant that uh, wasn't getting the big budgets anymore. And he said, yeah, you know, I just got a million dollar budget for Aerosmith album. You know what we did with it? I said, no, what did you do? He said, we built them a private Aerosmith studio. I said, yeah, that's what's going on. Because I had Metallica at the plant for about six, seven years. And when they left, it was because their accountants went, hey, 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 look at all the money you're putting in the plant. You could be putting in the Metallica studio. Right. And that was what was going on. But Jack had built the room at Mars, which was my second studio. I was only there one year <laughs> because the owner of the building decided that he liked the fact that I had made the studio really successful. It was a big empty room with no equipment. And I found out later that he had screwed his first partner who left and took all the gear. And I didn't know I, because I didn't do due diligence on this guy. I was so hot to move to Hollywood and get a bigger room that I'd never looked into his background. It turned out he was kind of a crook. He tried to change the locks and get rid of me and keep all my gear and all my clients. So after one year, I moved out of Mars and it was a midnight move, Matt. Yeah. I had, uh. I had a crew of guys. <laughs> we came in at midnight and all night long, we moved all my gear out of that studio. And the next morning I wake up at eight o'clock. My wife says, there's two LAPD here at the front door. They would like to talk to you. I said, LAPD. And you know, the LAPD are like six foot three and they have hip boots and they really are scary. Yeah. And there were two of them standing at my door and they said, uh, you are any Frager? I said, yeah. I said, well, we have a complaint that you've stolen all the equipment from a studio in Hollywood and we want to take you down to the station. Oh. And I said, well, I have a piece of paper here that I had that fellow that owned that building sign. It said, I'm moving my equipment in, but we're not partners. I'm just storing it here. And if I ever decide I want to leave, this is all my equipment. And I showed that to the policeman. And I also had the leases of all the equipment with me that I had been pretty much paid off all the gear. And I showed it to the police and they said, oh, oh, this is a civil dispute. So we'll have to leave you alone. And they left. And that wound up with about a six month lawsuit cost me a fortune because I won the lawsuit that this guy was trying to rip me off and steal my equipment. And my, I had a, the funny thing is I was, would have been willing to be partners with the guy. We were doing 40,000 a month on costs of about 15 grand. That was probably the most financially successful studio I ever had. Wow. My main client there was Leon Silvers from the band, the Silvers. And you may not know this, but the Silvers were like the alternative to the Jackson five with Michael Jackson. No, I didn't know that. They were the other group that was like four or five young black guys that were, they were great. And Leon was the bass player and he became a producer of a lot of groups 
Shalimar, Lakeside, a bunch of uh, studio records that we made that were big hits. And we were doing 30 to 40,000 a month. And then this guy decided he wanted it all. So he was going to throw me out and keep my gear. And I pulled a fast one on him. What a waste that, like to get that selfish. And then, well, you know, Matt, I've written a book and I call it Studio Wars because I feel like the whole time I owned a studio and I really owned them for 36 years, I always felt I was in a fucking battle to survive. Yeah. That's, that's what it felt like pretty much all the time, except at the plant, there was a couple of years I had Santana, Dave Matthews and Metallica in the studio at the same time. And I thought, okay, now it's working. <laughs> that's like getting like three cherries on the slot machine, right? Yeah, exactly. So after you moved out, where did you go next? I ran a couple studios in Hollywood for people because I, I had to have a room to work out of because I was really a hot engineer at that time. While I was at Mars, I met a guy by the name of Claire Fisher. And Claire Fisher became a major factor in my life from that point on. I met Claire in 82, 83. He was signed to a little jazz label called Discovery Records, Albert Marks. And I did a jazz record for him and he and I got along really well. I was from Ohio originally. He was from Michigan. We had a similar European background. His ancestors are from Germany. My, my ancestors are Ukrainian Jews. And because I played an instrument and I had a classical training, we just hit it off. Hmm. And I did not understand at the time that Claire was a studio guy. He was making records for this label, but he was a studio guy and an arranger. And because we got along so well, I wound up working with Claire for the next 25 years. I did all his records hmm. for his jazz groups, but he got hired as a string arranger and orchestrator for Prince for Paul McCartney, for Shaka Khan, Celine Dion, I could go on and on. Wow. And every, every time he got hired to arrange a large orchestral date, they were mostly overdubs to tracks that are already completed where people wanted what they called sweetening. And so we would do these dates that would be anywhere from 40 string players to 60 full orchestra, 60 piece. And we worked for, well, here's a short list. Paula Abdul, Paul McCartney, Shaka Khan, Celine Dion, Tori Amos, Michael Jackson, Coverdale Page album, Robert Palmer, Joao Gilberto. That's a short list. Damn. And Claire, who passed away about seven, eight years ago, Claire gave me the best gig I ever had in my entire 36-year career owning studios and engineering live dates. The best gig I ever had, I never did. And I have, I have to tell you about this. This is one of my stories that I haven't written up yet. Claire died. I went to his funeral. Have you ever been to a Forest Lawn Memorial in Los Angeles? It's no. in Burbank. Never. So this is where all the movie stars are buried. Marilyn Monroe, right? Clark Gable. This is a huge place. I don't know how many acres. They must have about 10 buildings where you can have a funeral. Some are small if you're having a small memorial. 
Claire's funeral was in a huge building. There was a 16-piece band on stage, which was his orchestra, led by his son, Brent Fisher, who was a wonderful arranger and bassist on his own. And the band was playing at Claire's funeral, and Al Schmidt was there. Mm. Now, you know who Al Schmidt is. Yeah. So all of us who were heavyweight engineers in Hollywood, those of us who were had reached the sort of the highest level in L.A., we all looked up to Al Schmidt as the dean of engineers. Absolutely. And I'm at the funeral, and everybody knows I've been Claire's engineer for 20, 22 years or so. And Al Schmidt walks up to me and he says, Arnie, I'm sorry I stole your gig. And I said, what gig is that? He says, well, you know that Claire was hired to do the orchestration for Michael Jackson film, This Is It. Now, you, you may or may not remember this film, but when Michael died, they had been rehearsing for a worldwide tour. Right. And the company that paid for all the rehearsals and for the tour it was AEG. It's a national concert promotion company. And AEG, after he died, decided, well, we spent so much money, we have to make a movie of the rehearsals because we, we have no tour. And so maybe we can recover and recoup some of our investment in all these rehearsals with the, all these people. So they made this film called This Is It of the entire two months of rehearsals. And they hired Claire Fisher, who I had been partnering with for 20 some years. They hired him to write the orchestrations. And when Claire was hired as orchestrator, he was also the uh, conductor of the orchestra. So Claire insisted that I come to Hollywood and record it. Hmm. But the family of Michael Jackson had been working for years with Al Schmidt. And so they overruled Claire when he asked for me. They said, no, 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 we work with Al Schmidt. So Al told me, he said, you were up for that gig recording and doing all the film score for the movie This Is It but the family decided they wanted me to do it. So I did the gig that you were requested by Claire. And I was at his funeral and I didn't know any of that. I didn't know that Claire had scored the movie. I didn't know that he had asked for me. I would have never known any of this had it not been for Al Schmidt. Yeah. Gentlemanly of him to come to you and, and say that. It was wonderful. It, it meant, it's hard to talk about it because it, it meant a lot to me. I bet it did. Yeah, I bet it did. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, as we all know, he's no longer with us. But wow, what a what a stand up thing to do to. Well, I had I had known him over the years. I'd gotten to know him because, you know, when you go to the AES conventions, you, <laughs> all the guys that are sort of the old line guys have been around a while go to the bar. Yeah, <laughs> they don't go to the panels. They go to the bar. <laughs> so we used to hang out at the bar with Elliot Shiner and Al Schmidt, all the all the top guys. Let's talk about the plant. How did okay. you come into that whole situation? It's an interesting story, actually. My wife at that time has since passed away. She was a girl who grew up in Concord. And so she wanted to live in the Bay Area. And we were down in I met her in L.A. And we had been together for a number of years. We'd been together about 12, 14 years. And she said, look, I, I, we got to leave L.A. We got to move up there. I said, well. It took me 15 years to get established here in L.A., and I'm doing great. I don't want to leave L.A. And not only that, my parents were pretty old, 
and they lived down there. I really wasn't excited about moving to the Bay Area, but it was, it began to feel like it was a choice between getting a divorce and breaking up my family life. I have two children, so, you know, wife and two kids or moving and starting all over again. So I decided, well, I'm going to keep my family together. Mm -hmm. And I moved and I had no job or anything. I, I moved up here. I sold my Hollywood studio, my third studio, which was called Hollywood Central. And I decided, well, I don't know anybody in the Bay Area, so I'll go to all the studios and see if I can maybe find something to do or maybe somebody would like me to run their studio or something. So I went and visited everybody who was in the business. And the guy that was running Fantasy at the time was uh, Roy Siegel. Hmm. And I went to see him and I said, I'm moving up here and uh, maybe you've got some work for a pretty experienced engineer. And they said, oh, yeah, Arnie Frager, I've heard of you. He knew a lot about me, actually. And I said, yeah, I'm going to come up and I know you do a lot of jazz records here at Fantasy. And he said, well, you better stay in L.A. because I don't have any work for you. And there isn't any work for independent engineers up here. So I think you, you shouldn't move up here. Hmm. And so I was kind of offended by that. I would be. Because he was a New York guy who moved out to the Bay Area and made a, made a success out of his career as an engineer. He was running this pretty substantial facility that did film mixing as well as records. It had three or four studios. So I went around town and visited everybody else. And when I met the guy that owned the plant, he had bought it with money he borrowed. So he was deep in the hole already on day one. And because the government had seized the studio in a drug seizure and padlocked it, no bands had been there for almost two years. The U.S. government had owned the plant for 18 months. And during the time they owned it, even though they kept it open and they kept the staff and they paid them, none of the bands were going to go there because, you know, this was the sex, drugs and rock and roll palace. Right. And nobody was going to go there when the government owned it. No. So Bob had bought it and he was in real financial trouble. And I decided, I think the guys at Fantasy, they're never going to make anything available for me. They don't even think there's any point in me moving here. So I think what I'll do is I'll go to my A&R guys in L.A. and I'll say, I want you to bring this project up to the plant and I'll do it. And so I started bringing Bob business. And after about three months, he said to me one day, he said, you know, you seem to be really good at, you brought me like major projects, two or three. And I renegotiated, he had a deal with Bruce Cohn, who managed the Doobie Brothers. The Doobie Brothers had an album budget from Capitol, a major label, and they were paying Bob $75 an hour. And I said, you're supposed to be getting 150 to 200 an hour. You're getting 75 an hour. You can't survive on that. So I went out and talked to their manager. I said, Bruce, you know, you got to pay the plant 150 an hour, not, not 75, because you've got a budget from capital. And I happen to know, I know the A&R guy over there. I know what your budget is. So if you don't pay these guys a decent hourly rate, next time you, the Doobie Brothers, go to make a record, they ain't going to be there. And believe it or not, Bruce was a reasonable guy, and he actually started paying Bob a good rate. So 
After about three or four months of me bringing in a lot of business to the plant, Bob offered me to become a 50-50 partner. So that answers the question of how did I get involved? I started by just helping the guy. I had no plans to own the plant. I had no plans when I took the lease on Venice Beach to ever be a recording engineer or studio owner either. <laughs> but, I think my, that's I think my whole career was just a bunch of flukes, actually. Right. <laughs> how long did you run the plant as a studio from the moment you took 50-50 partnership? I was a 50-50 partner in September 1st, 1988. That's when I took over. I said, look, Bob, I have a business background in sales and marketing, so you got to let me run the business. You can deal with the technical support and whatever, but let me run the business. Even though you own 51%, I own 49%. Let me run the business. I'll turn it around. And, I, and that's what happened. I ran the business. We turned it around. And then in 1993, I bought Bob's interest out. He left to become a uh, acoustician. Hmm. And I took over the whole business by myself in 1993. So I started in 1988 and we closed the studio because the business just completely died. Yeah. In 2000, April 2008. So I owned it for 20 years. What was the highlight? If you could think back of that period of time and say, I remember this period of time as the, the golden times, the best times. What were those times? The 90s. In the 90s, I had taken over in 88. The place was within a week of going under, literally going under. And it was very hard for me to see how to turn it around because for one thing, it was scary for me. I was a new kid in town. Everybody in town knew the plan. Everybody was watching what's going to happen there after the government had shut it down. So I had to hit the ground kind of running. And the first thing I did was I rebuilt the control room in Studio A and put in a solid state logic G plus mixing board. Mm -hmm. At that time, which was 1989, that was a very big deal. If you didn't have an SSL, you didn't have a studio. As far as the top mixers were concerned, because the, the SSL G series were the first mixing boards that automation really worked reliably. You could count on it working. And a compressor on every channel was a big deal. Oh, yeah. Especially for rock and roll engineers who like to squash everything. <laughs> so I put in an SSL. It cost me 15 grand a month for that mixing board on a lease. And to be honest with you, over the years I owned studios, which is 36 years I owned them, I thought I was working for the landlords, the leasing companies, and the employees because I never paid myself six figures ever. I mean, I barely made a living. Yeah, I made a living. I supported a wife and two kids, but I never got I never came close to the living I made before I started building studios, selling computer systems. I bet. <laughs> but the first thing I did when I built the control room of A is I scored Walter Afanasiev, and he had just scored a production deal at Sony Music and was producing Mariah Carey. Yeah. <laughs> so literally, my first gambit was to rebuild the control room. And Walter walked in and he looked at the cloth on the walls and he went, wow, purple. I love purple. 
and you got a solid state logic board. I love solid state logic board. And he just moved in. And there it was. The plant was starting to generate real, real major acts and major revenue for Sony Music. Wow. <laughs> so the 90s really, really was, that was the magic time. That was when the yeah. acts were coming in. The, there was the budgets, the income. Both for the studio and also for me, my first project. Now, the 80s I did in L.A. when I moved to Hollywood, I did almost exclusively R&B records. So when I moved up to the plant, I thought, you know, I think I'll finally be working on rock records because this is a rock studio. And, you know, I've been doing 10 years of R&B records, and I, I think it's time to do some rock and roll because I, I probably listen to equal parts of rock and roll, jazz, and R&B. I love them all. And the first album I scored as a producer engineer was Tony, Tony, Tony. No kidding. It was my first project, so I thought I was getting away from R&B, and there I was back doing an R&B record. And that record had six number one singles, and it was a huge hit. And it broke the band, made the band a big band. And to this day, I'm still tight with two of the guys in that band, Dwayne Wiggins and his brother, who goes by Raphael Sadiq. Uh-huh. Now, Ray, we call him Ray. Ray built a studio in North Hollywood. And then whenever I go visit him, we walk around. He tells me how he built it like the plant. See this wavy wall? <laughs> He's got a three-room complex down there. But that was a very successful album that we did at the plant. And then I came up with this idea. Actually, I started doing it in the 70s, signing and developing groups on my own. I felt that if I had an empty room, because the three studios in L.A. were one-room studios. If I had an empty room for a month, nobody booked it. It was stupid to let it sit there empty when I was paying all this money for leasing equipment and paying rent and all. So I started signing and developing groups on my own. And in 91, I signed a group that contained Beyonce. The group was called Girls Time. I had this idea in the 90s that... There were all these little boy groups like New Edition, Bobby Brown, Belle Biv and DeVoe, and there were no little girl groups. So I started looking around and there was a guy in Oakland. They said, there's this little girl group. They live in Houston. And I looked them up and I flew to Houston and I went to what it turned out was Beyonce's house. Her father, Matthew Knowles and her mother were independent. They each were in business, so they lived in a pretty upscale neighborhood in Houston. And I went there to see this little girl group, and they auditioned for me, and I signed them immediately to a two-year contract and flew them to Mill Valley, put them up at the Holiday Inn Express in Mill Valley. And I did a whole album on this group. They were called Girls' Time. And I moved Beyonce she was one of the background singers because there was one girl who was a little older, a little bit better singer. Her name was Ashley. And Ashley was the lead singer. And I thought when I started working with them in the studio, I thought that Beyonce had all the charisma and personality. She was 10, mm. 11. So I said, I think we should make Beyonce the lead singer. And then after Girls' Time, album never really went anywhere because I couldn't get any major label to sign the girls. 
Uh, I came really close because I was working with Prince at the time, and I sent Prince the tape on Girls' Time, and he said, I'm going to sign them to my label, which he didn't do. Mm. But I had two or three close calls where I almost got him a record deal. But the one thing that Matthew told me, because Matthew wound up being the man, her father, Beyonce's father, became the manager of Girls' Time and Destiny's Child, which was the group where Beyonce became a big star. Yeah. And Matthew told me that by me moving Beyonce from one of the backing singers to the lead singer in the group, that was really what made the difference. So two of the six girls in Girls' Time became the girls in Destiny's Child. And that was Beyonce and Kelly Rowland. So that was my first group I signed that had a huge, huge success later on after I didn't have them under contract anymore. They did offer, they did ask me if I would be their manager while I was at there working with them. I said, why don't you just quit the studio thing and be our manager? And I couldn't do it because I was busy rebuilding the plant and I was committed to that. And so I, I wasn't about to just leave all that and, and go manage a group that who knew what was going to happen with the girls. You were renting the plant, right? We were leasing the building, yeah. Who were you leasing it from? The company was called EMIC Properties. It was a guy that I became very good friends with, Mike Gilbert. They had a portfolio of commercial property in Southern Marin. Okay. I never owned the property, unfortunately, because I spent almost... $10 million rebuilding everything inside that building. Wow. Well, we've, we've talked about the golden times, the 90s. This is not fun, I'm sure, to talk about this, but let's talk about what were the dark times? What time period did you just start to feel like, oh my God, this is just too much. This is not going as planned. Well, from 1988 to 2000, I would say was a very good period at the plant. A lot of major hits, a lot of major bands. 93, I scored Metallica. They were mixing this project that was basically two years of recording their live concerts. And they did this box set called Live Shit, Binge and Purge. Yeah. And it was uh, three CDs and two DVDs of all their live shows to support the album, the Black Album, their biggest commercial album. Yeah. So... I had talked to them and said, look, you guys are mixing here. Why don't you record your next album here? Because you've been recording in LA and I'd like you to record here. Don't you all live here? Don't you all have girlfriends and wives? And yeah, we'd like to record here, but you don't have that kind of a room. We need a big live room. You don't have a room like that. Your biggest studio isn't live enough for my drums. Right. So, well, look, Lars, if you'd give me a commitment, over a period of time for a certain number of albums and give me an advance on that, I'll build that room. And so I talked them into giving me a million dollars. I rebuilt Studio A, literally ripped the roof off of the plant, rebuilt that, and they moved in and did six records there. So that was, that was one of my big wins, I would say. Mm-hmm. Scoring Metallica. You see, the plant wouldn't have survived if I didn't have an anchor tenant. I had to have an anchor Band because it was so expensive. At this time, I had three SSLs and I had rebuilt three studios and the overhead. You wouldn't believe this, Matt. I had overhead that was 125000 to 150000 a month. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's that's hard to, hard to fathom, really. 
It was for me too. How was that monthly for you mentally? I mean, were you always on edge? See, how can I best answer that question by saying I've had three heart attacks? Oh, and were any of the heart attacks during the time of the plant? The first one was 1998 and the next one was in 2000. The first two were during the time I owned the plant. Yeah, I had, I had so much financial pressure on me the whole time I owned studios, the three in LA, they were always marginal. Right. Just when you'd think you were doing good, you'd have a month or two with no bookings. And then you'd be in the hole again. And it was up and down the one room studio. So I thought, well, when I own the plant and I have three rooms, that'll be easier. No, it was harder. Because, you know, today everybody can make a record with a computer and, and a couple of microphones. Mm hmm. You don't need to buy a $10,000 piano because you can get a $200 program called Ivory. Exactly. And it sounds like any piano you want to dial up. You had to have rooms back in those days. Today, you've got all kinds of ambiences you can dial up. You know, it's a whole different game. And it was such an expensive game that you could never really make money owning a studio, I, I found. And it didn't matter if it was a one-room studio in LA, which was the city, or a four-room complex from a famous place in the Bay Area. It still was very, very dicey financially the whole time. Do you think that you, like looking back and kind of analyzing your, your time there, in spite of the good times, could you say, I made these mistakes. If I had done this different, things would have changed or things would have been different? Like, are there any things that you look back on and think, God, I wish I could do that decision over or this decision over? Yeah. I think the biggest mistake I made at the plant was I believed all the hype about surround me. You know, it's like today, if you notice, you mentioned at the beginning of our talk that you're a Dolby Atmos mixer. Yeah. And I read every day I, when I read the trades, I read about Dolby Atmos mixing for music. Mm-hmm. And I personally, as a musician and a person who's been buying albums my whole life and listening, I don't personally think that spatial audio for music people yeah. is going to be that important. And it's, I think it's probably my bias is based on my experience with surround. Back in the 90s, surround was going to be the next thing. You know, After everybody went to digital and everybody went to compact discs, the next thing was going to be 5.1. So I spent, in 1999 and 2000, I spent $2 million building a surround mixing room I called The Garden. I remember the name, The Garden, at the, at the plant. The Garden cost $2 million. I, I completely demolished Studio C, is what it was called before that. It was sort of the plant's third room for the smaller groups with smaller budgets. You know, it was kind of the demo room at the plant. Studio A and B being the main rooms. Right. I right. demolished Studio C to the ground. I filled in what had been sliced. It had been Sly Stone and Rick James' bedroom. And when Sly owned it, they turned it into what uh, Gary Keldron called the pit, which was 10 feet down was the engineer and the control room was 10 feet below the surface of the floor. And then the musicians were at the floor level and the head of the engineer was about floor level. So they called that the pit. And I filled the pit in with cement 
and built this beautiful surround mixing room. And about that time, the whole industry collapsed right around 2000. Mm. And that $2 million and that surround mixing room, we mixed very few records there. We did do a mix for Dave Matthews band album there. And we got some projects, but it never really paid off. And actually surround records never happened. That's right. I was just mesmerized by the idea of building a six channel, beautiful room. And my tech at the time, Manny La Caruba had started a speaker company. And so I used his prototype speakers for the speakers in that room. It was a great room if you were mixing in six channel surround, which never happened. But do you think, even if you hadn't have done that, the industry started to collapse a bit. And before we started recording, you were talking about how bands like Metallica would say, hey, we're spending all this money. Let's go build our own studio. That's what started happening in right around the late 90s, 2000s. There was, there was already private studios and homes in L.A. And in fact, there were a lot of lawsuits about that. The big studios in Hollywood tried to shut down the home studios in L.A. I remember that. And they failed miserably, too. I'll never forget it. It was a big fuss. There was some home studio guy that left his brochure at the record plant in Hollywood. And so they sued this guy. And it was a big deal. But basically what boiled down to was I kept the plant alive from 2000 to 2008. And that was another huge mistake I made because at that time I was very hot as an engineer producer on my own. And I was doing Prince's dates and I was working with a lot of big stars, Tori Amos, you know, all major label acts. I was flying to LA all the time as an engineer. I should have closed the plant, but I was so in love with the place and the people that were on my crew. And we had such a great infrastructure and team. I couldn't imagine that the entire industry for recording in major studios would collapse. So I borrowed money against equipment I had paid off. I, at this point, I had three studios full of SSLs and a big Neve I bought that I put two 32-channel 8068s together. So I had a 64-channel 8068 in Studio B, which was the old hippie room, kind of the psychedelic studio. Mm -hmm. Then I had a great big J-series SSL in the Studio A. And, and then John Cunaberti and I put our heads together and came up with a mastering room. So I thought the place was just a full-on, state-of-the-art, world-class studio, and that's what I had in mind for it when I took over in 1988. And once I achieved that, it took 12 years to rebuild the place and $10 million. I wasn't about to just close the doors of what I should have done Yeah, had I been just looking in my bank account and thinking about it, but I was too on the hook for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a combination of maybe a little bit of having blinders on and also having regret for spending all this money and thinking, well, I can't walk away now. Well, once you achieve this dream you have of really turning this place, which was famous in the 70s, back into a really happening place. Yeah. And I mean, it was happening. In 97, we did Supernatural for Carlos. We did Metallica. 
and we did Dave Matthews at the same time. They were Studio A, B, and C. Wow. Yeah. So we were happening, and I was looking at the balance sheet, and we were actually making money. And for a year or two, I could sort of coast. Believe it or not, there was one year in those twenty years when I could coast. <laughs> okay, so everything you know about studios and the experiences you've had, I think this is really important for those that are listening to this and they have these dreams of building a studio, what would you say to them? If you were sitting down having a cup of coffee with one of these people saying, I'm going to build a studio and it's going to be this and that, and they have grandiose ideas, what would you tell them? Well, I think I would say, keep your overhead really low. Keep your costs really down. I was not fiscally responsible as much as I should have been. I didn't understand that no matter who you are and how hot you are, you're going to have ups and downs. And you, you ought to really be prepared financially for the downs because they are going to happen. Mm -hmm. I had a long stretch of downs at the plant, like eight years. And during that time, I was so committed to the place that instead of closing the doors, which would have been a lot better for me financially, I just kept the place alive until I had borrowed everything I could borrow. I had mortgaged up to the hilt. And I walked away with really literally nothing when I closed the doors in 2008 because we had been losing money for seven, eight years. Oh, and you borrowed money against the gear. I mortgaged everything I owned. Okay. Okay. So you, were, you weren't able to take those SSLs and just flip them and take the money and, and go. You actually had to give those up. Is that right? Well, it was, there were two things that caused me to walk away from the plant with literally nothing. One was I borrowed money for years from a couple of partners so I could stay alive. Ah, okay. And the other thing was the guy that owned the property who I was very close with and had a great relationship with for 15 years, he decided to sell all his properties in a bunch. So he rolled them all into one big sale. He had like 12 properties. And he told me, I'm going to sell this building. Would you like to buy it? And I said, well, the studio business is down in the toilet. I couldn't afford to buy it right now. And I don't think I would anyhow, because I don't see a future for big time multi-room recording studios, certainly not in San Francisco, maybe in LA and in Nashville and New York. But at that time, Sony had closed their New York studio. All the big studios in New York had closed. It just looked like there wasn't going to be much of a future, but I just didn't know how to quit. I'm good at building things. I'm not good at walking away from things or quitting them. Mm. And I, I just stayed there till the bitter end. But then I got into a lawsuit. A guy came along and bought the property, but not my business. He became my landlord. But then he went around town telling everybody, hey, I own the plant. I said, well, Michael, it's come back to me that you're telling everybody in town that you own the plant. So you bought the guitar case, not the guitar. Oh, yeah, I was, I was offended that the fellow was clearly trying to have the image of being the plant owner. And at this point, 2005, when he bought the building, I'd been there for 18 years rebuilding this place and making it work. So I was pretty offended by what was happening. And I sort of saw 
it's sort of like sometimes you see the handwriting on the wall. I saw that this guy was really interested in pushing me out. Mm. And so we had a three-year battle. And if you owned recording studios for 35 years and fought those battles up and down to keep them alive, you get tired. I, would, I got really tired when I got to 2007 and looked at the legal bills I had. And I was fighting not just the industry. There was no surround mixing. There was hardly any recording going on. No more big groups coming in with $500,000 budgets. As you know, the budgets went from in the 70s. We had budgets for brand new groups that were from 250000 to 500000 and today, budgets for new bands are something like 50000 to to 100000 So everything had downsized in terms of what money is available to make records. And the plant was this big, expensive beast. And on top of that, I, I'm fighting my landlord. And I got real tired of that. And then my uh, financial partners said, look, what are you going to do if you have to close the doors and you owe us all this money? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to turn over all my equipment to you because it's all paid off and I can't pay you back hmm. and I can't sell the studio. Nobody, nobody in their right mind. I mean, I had clients of mine that were leaving, uh, working at the plant to go home with Pro Tools. Yeah. So the, you know, the writing was on the wall as far as home studios really becoming the medium for people that didn't have big budgets. So you closed it down in 2008. April 2008, I closed the studio. My landlord made a, made a serious effort to try and take it over and run the studio. He lasted, I think, three months. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that was really weird, and it was also true at Mars, was these guys that were trying to take over my place, they had no idea of what a recording studio is. I mean, here I am, a musician my whole life with a master's degree in electrical engineering and computer science. I'm an expert in all things digital. That was my background. Even before the audio business went into digital, I was very, very knowledgeable about all computer technology. So these guys, they just never understood what it takes to uh, run a studio because really what it is is it's a support the artist business. That's what it is. It's not about you. It's not about how great your reverbs are. It's really about how much do you love the idea of making a record and how much can you give to an artist who's coming in there to do the most important thing in his life, which is making his music. I, as a musician, thought of the recording studio and I do to this day as a, as my guitar, you know, I play the bass guitar in a band right now. I played upright bass in many, many bands and I'm a pretty good piano player. And so I always approach the studio as, well, this is my new instrument recording studio. And I, I do that today. I have a record that's being released tomorrow on a new artist. And I did this record. I did the basic tracks at Opus Studio in Berkeley. Oh, yeah, I've been there, yeah. Lovely place. Wonderful guy there, Dave. The guy that's the manager was a major manager at Fantasy. Now, when Fantasy closed, Dave wound up at this studio. It's very nice. And I, tra I tracked a live band there. And then I did all the overdubs, all the vocals, all the lead guitars at my home studio. 
I have a full-on home studio. And again, I, I think what changed in recording is the studio is more like your guitar. It's an instrument. It doesn't have to be a big fancy place with a, a solid state console. Maybe, maybe you don't even, I don't really have a mixing board here. Right. I have a Mackie board for the microphones coming in and I use Pro Tools. But the record I just finished, I made a full album with this artist named Frankie Jupiter. I'll send you the single. It's coming out tomorrow. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. We have a song coming out tomorrow called Peace of Me. It'll be at all the DSPs tomorrow. Okay. And I'm being distributed by a local distributor, A-Train Entertainment, which is uh, Al Evers over in Oakland. He's been around for a long time. Oh, he's been my guy. Al and I have been working together over 30 years. He was the one who helped me sell my Beyonce record back to her management group, the uh, Girls' Time album. I sold that album several years later and got my investment and then some. You mentioned a book. Well, I wrote a book. It's kind of a comedy. I wrote about all the crazy and silly and stupid and funny things I saw working for the stars. You know, I've worked for Dolly Parton, Carlos Santana, Paul McCartney. I spent a whole day with Paul McCartney working on Flowers in the Dirt, his album. I did 45 songs with Prince. I worked with Michael Jackson. I had a number one hit with Michael Jackson called Somebody's Watching Me on an artist whose name was Rockwell. Yeah. So I, I wrote a book where each chapter is about the silly stuff I saw making this record. Because as you know, making records is kind of a party experience. At least in those days, it wasn't one guy in a room with a computer. Right. It was a bunch of people in the band, their staff. If Carlos came in, it was his band of eight guys. And then there were eight more guys to support the eight guys in the band. It was like a big party. Yeah. Those days were a ball. What's the name of the book? Oh, I don't, I think I'm going to call it Studio Wars because I oh. felt like I was in a battle for survival all 36 years. <laughs> okay. So your book's not out yet. No, I haven't released it. I'm writing the last chapter, which is when I lost my mind and thought I was going to become a rock star at the age of 30, because I was 30 years old before I decided to go into the music business for real. Hmm. And I thought it was a, it was a very big long shot. I think my whole career was a long shot, man. I will put a link in the show notes to the website that you provided for those that want to check out because that's still the Plant Studios website, is it? It's like a it's like a time capsule scene. It is a time capsule, yeah. The website reflects the plant at its peak during the time the 20 years I owned it. And now we're connecting to that the new website we're building for the plant studios records my record label that i started two years ago i took my brand with me mm -hmm. because some new people bought the property and they're i don't know what they're doing there but they're not doing a recording studio near as i can tell the only thing i could think could you could do in that building that would work today would be a record company i proposed that to those guys i don't think they wanted to go that way they were talking about a museum and a tour. Uh, for that, I have no interest. I spent a lot of years and a lot of money to make that a world-class facility. And if it's not going to be a recording studio or if it's not going to be a record label, I decided I'd launch my own label. So I started a label two years ago. I got two acts signed. 
And the record Frankie Jupiter comes out tomorrow. It's called Peace of Me. I think it's a great song. We'll put a link in the show notes for that. I intend to sign more new artists. My main interest, and it's been this way for probably the whole 30, 40 years I've been in the business, is finding new new artists that have something really great and original. Yeah. And uh, that's what I'm doing with my time these days. I'm still in the studio making a record every day. <laughs> Just a different studio. And in about 10 days, I turn 80. Wow. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to preemptively wish you happy birthday. Thank you. And, uh, it'll be 50 years next year that I've been doing this. I can't believe I'm, I, I am shocked that I'm still doing it, but I am. Oh, I think it's brilliant. Well, Arnie, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate your time and, and sharing everything with my audience. It's great to meet you, Matt, and delighted to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And you take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Arnie Frager here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. A reminder to head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash 15 tips to get the 15 tips to help you survive as an audio professional. These are ideas and concepts pulled from interviews from Eric Valentine, Jack and Dino, Andrew Sheps, and Steve Albini. And I think you'll get some good knowledge out of it. I want to thank the crew that includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale in the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his magical voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.